science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt right. And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week's story is from Tom Levinson. It was recorded in October 2015 at Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as part of the Science Writers 2015 meeting. Once upon a time, actually 1999, my wife and I decided we wanted to have a child. So we set out in the usual way to do so, the fun way. And nothing happened. And after a while, we got the message. Uh, there was nothing we could do to persuade two of our own haploid cells to consent to a merger. <laughs> so it was time for plan B, adoption. And not just any adoption. Um, you see, I really wanted to do this baby thing right from the start, you know, right at the birth or as close to it as possible. And that meant we were talking about a domestic identified adoption, which is to say we were looking for a newborn in the United States whose mother already knew who we, her, we were and we her. And it turns out there's a fairly well-established process for this, and we just started down that path. We took a whole bunch of pictures of our house, of ourselves, of the room that our imagined child would inhabit. And we started writing our pitch letter, which, you know, it's an interesting thing to have to write to persuade somebody you haven't met yet that you are the perfect parents for their as-yet-unborn child. So we wrote that, and then we rewrote it, and then we rewrote it, and finally... By the end of the summer, we were ready to go. And we got all our stuff together and we shipped off the package to our baby broker. Um, there are these people around the country whose job it is basically to match up would-be adoptive couples with expectant mothers who are considering adoption. And so that's what we did. And we waited. And we waited. And we waited. And it began to feel a little bit like our first attempt to have a child, only less fun. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and then eventually the phone, uh, the phone actually did ring. And on the other end of the line, uh, there was a woman in her early 20s in Reno, Nevada, already the mother of one who was expecting a child uh, the following May. And I'm not going to tell you any details about her. That's her story, not mine uh, to share. Uh, but she was absolutely clear about what she wanted to do and why. And she was quite rigorous. I mean, she really quizzed us. It took, I think, as I recall, uh, with my imperfect memory, a couple of phone calls, but she really talked to us and, and tried to figure us out. And then she said, think about it. And we hung up, and we didn't hear from her for a while. Again, it felt like a long time, but in this case, it was just, you know, a few weeks. And then the phone rang again on Christmas Day, and she said she'd made her decision. And it came across with this almost kind of, she'd had a magical realization that we were, in fact, her child's parents. Just like that, we were expecting. Five months to go. So we did what you do in such circumstances. We started gathering stuff. A friend gave us a crib they no longer needed. I found my childhood bear, that sort of thing. And, you know, we got nervous, just like any new parents-in-waiting, except not quite 
just like. You see, I'm a science writer, and I've been one for more than three decades, and I fell in love with the beat, and I keep doing the work because I love the joy of knowing stuff. You know, the solidity of scientific knowledge. And yes, I know that scientists get things wrong, and I've heard it said that there are science writers who've written up breakthroughs that aren't. Um, but in fact, we are work on an area where for at least some of our questions, there are real answers. And none of that obtains in an identified adoption. You see, you strip it all away, and what it comes down to is an identified adoption is a choice. A young woman is making a decision that the child she is carrying will go to the two people she's you know, got in front of her. And there's a corollary to that. There's a necessary corollary, which is she can change her mind. She has the absolute right to change her mind at any point, beginning to the very last second. Which meant that for us, there was no way we could know from the point she told us that we were her child's parents to the point in May when the child would be born and we'd fly out to Reno. We had no idea whether we would come back from Reno as parents. You know, you want certainty, go cover CRISPR. So we did what you do. We just sort of hung on and hoped for the best, and winter passed into spring. And then one evening in early May, the phone rang again. I picked it up, and the by now very familiar voice said, I know this was supposed to be a couple weeks from now, but it's happening right now. Okay. Katha jumped on the, uh, the extension, and we had what was one of those phone calls, you know, you really don't expect to have ever. We were chatting with our birth mom between contractions. We went nice and quiet when she had to push. And finally, just before midnight, we heard the last 10, 9, 8, and then this, this little squeal that told us, you know, on the evidence before us, that there was a 6-pound, six 6-ounce six bundle of genuinely irked new human being in our midst. <laughs> you know, um, we had already, we knew the gender going in. Um, the actual, the sonogram that they sent us actually had this little sign on it, a little handwritten thing on it, boy parts. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so we chose a name and, and everybody agreed and that was actually what went on the birth certificate. So that was how I can tell you with some certainty that at least as we were told on his first night on the planet, Baby Henry had a good night's rest. We didn't. You know, for us, the next, you know, little while was just a complete blur. We, you know, got up really early. We got to the airport. We got the first flight we could to the West Coast. We got ourselves a car. We drove up over the Sierras and down into Reno. And we actually made it there by about 4 o'clock the next day, you know, 20 hours or so after the birth. And we entered uh, the hospital room. And all of a sudden, something that had sort of been latent in this situation became very clear. It was, it was strange. I mean, not bad, but difficult. You know, when you're in an identified adoption, everybody involved um, understands that, you know, really in the middle of it is a gift. The young woman giving her child up for adoption is being incredibly generous. And you know, everybody knows at least a little bit that she's always poised right on the edge of loss. 
you know, just because her decision is explicit doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Which made it kind of awkward, you know, to be staring fixedly on the little perfect bundle she was holding in her arms and to say, hi. And that's what we did. And she said hi, and she handed over the baby first to my wife, and then it was my turn. You know, that first hit of, you know, baby skin. The impossibly swift tap of his heart. You know, those ten digits, just like the big kids, only so, so small. And then I handed Henry back, and, you know, we talked for a while, and then we left the hotel room. Uh, the hospital room, excuse me. And, um, you know, there it was. Something was different. So the birth mom uh, went home the next day, uh, leaving the hospital as the official foster parent, and us in the just great situation of taking baby 101 from the just wonderful nurses in what was, for the time being, a quiet maternity ward. They showed us how to, you know, feed the baby. They showed us how to change him. We, you know... Um, held him, we watched him sleep, and then when it was time for lunch, we handed him over to the professionals. Everyone should enter parented so easily. Over the course of the weekend, we spent about 30 hours with Henry. We certainly learned how it felt, you know, him fitting just from elbow to hand. We started on the trial and error process of learning which cry meant feed me and which meant something else. He was becoming he had become our son, except not, not even a little. Under Nevada law, a new mother cannot commit to what's called with brutal clarity the irrevocable surrender of her child until 72 hours have passed from the birth. In our case, that would have meant Monday morning, but our birth mother decided, remember, she decides, no questions asked, no appeal. She had decided that she wanted to spend a day and a night with her child out of the hospital by herself before committing to giving him up to us. And so that's what she did. I'm thinking you can imagine, but maybe you can't, what was passing through our minds as Monday played out. Um, you know, one thing, our birth mom didn't have a car nor equally important a car seat, and we did. So in fact, we were the ones who went to the hospital and we picked them up, and it turned out we spent the day together. First we went to Sears, where she got a professional mother and child picture taken, and then we went shopping for some stuff. We got a couple of onesies, I think, that kind of thing. And we went to lunch, Katha and me on one side of the booth, Earth Mom, baby seat, baby, very much on the other. And then, you know, by late afternoon, it was time to take her to her home, uh, a group house where she was living with a, with a bunch of expect, expectant young women. And when we got there, she actually invited us in. And so we went in, and there it was again. Um, she and the baby were sitting on one sofa, and we were on the other side of the room on another sofa. And it was dreadful, <laughs> just awful. Um, you know, we could look. We couldn't touch, and we just couldn't bring ourselves to leave. And finally, the social worker attached to the house had to just kind of almost, you know, bodily force us out of the room. And she got us out the door onto the porch, and she said, you got to go now. You know, 
It'll be fine in the morning, really. But you know, she said, just go. And then she said, once more, it'll be fine, believe me. We went, but we didn't believe. I mean, we had no way of knowing at that point, no way at all, whether a decision that was made before the baby you know, when, when the baby was still an idea, not, not yet a real thing, we had no idea whether our birth mom could go through with that. And, you know, I became a science, a science writer because of the joy of knowing, really knowing. And I have to tell you, I simulated sleep all that night, and I realized I knew nothing. So... Remember, we had the car, and we had the car seat, so we made the arrangement the day before that we would go up, we would pick them up the next morning and go off to the state office where all the, you know, all the business, the paperwork has to be done. Uh, and as you can really believe, we were there at nine sharp. I mean, bang, right in front of the house. But long before we could get anywhere close to knocking on the door, the social worker came out, you know, really held us away from, the, from, from getting anywhere near and said, she's having some trouble. It's hard. But she knows what she needs to do. It'll be okay. But you got to go now. She can't see you. Go grab a cup of coffee. I'll call you. Wait for my call. It'll be okay. Go. Well, there's a coffee shop two, three blocks away, and we went there, a little room, 15 by 20. And um, I think I ordered a cup of coffee. I, I don't remember drinking it. Um, I do remember walking three or four miles in 10-yard laps, and uh, I started a bunch of sentences, I can't believe, I never finished them, I couldn't believe. Henry was a few hundred yards away. He was ours. He wasn't. Well, it took a little over an hour, but the call did come, and the social worker said, you know, she's not ready to see you, but, but come over and, and give me the car seat and I'll take everybody up. And so that's what we did. We drove over and, you know, the car seat was assuming a kind of ritual function at this point. And I handed over the votive object and, um, and the, the social worker said, you know, give us a few minutes. Let us get there first. And, oh, we did. I think we held out for maybe five minutes. And then we raced up the hill, up to the state office. And we got there. They were there before us. And, you know, we got in. It was clear that our birth mom had been crying. She was, you know, was really on the edge. And, uh, but, you know, she started the process. And as, you know, there's a fairly big stack of papers that have to be dealt with. And as she was signing her name and filling out stuff, every now and then the emotion would come up and, and you know, it would kind of stop. And, and, and then she'd gather herself and get back to it. And through this, the whole time, there was a state official there, and she kept reminding the birth mom and everybody that, you know, irrevocable means irrevocable. There's no going back. And, you know, we went, we went on, and uh, we're getting really near the end of the stack, and our birth mom had to stop again and just sort of gather herself. And as she was doing so, the, the state official said it again and said, you know, to the birth mom, you know, you really don't have to do this. And at that, it kind of, you know, goaded something. And birth mom gathered herself again and bent down to the desk and wrote out her name one last time. And that was it. 
as far as the state of Nevada was concerned, she had surrendered. But that wasn't quite where it ended. You know, after that, there's a sort of beat. And then the social worker said to the birth mom, says, okay, now it's time. You have to do this. You have to give the baby to its parents. And so she did. She reached down, she picked up Henry in her hands, and my wife made a cradle of her arms. The hands reached out. The baby was, the baby passed, was given from hands to arms. I cannot tell you when I first fell in love with my son. It's a state of being, you know, a kind of a property of my existence, you know, of the, of the universe, I guess. But I can tell you this, once Henry was, he was and is essential. That was Tom Levinson. Tom writes books, most recently The Hunt for Vulcan, out now, and makes films about science, its history, and whatever else catches his magpie's love of shiny bits. His work has been honored by a Peabody, a National Academy Science Communication Award, and a AAAS Science Journalism Award, among others. By day, he professes at MIT, where he directs the graduate program in science writing. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Ari Parker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Skylar Bayer, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Oberon for hosting the show, to Wade Roosh and everyone else at the National Association of Science Writers for being amazing partners, and to family. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.